Hello and welcome to another episode of the Family Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. I'm joined today by Corin Iton of Pump Court to, to talk about the decision of the Court of Appeal in the case of RE T&R 2021 EWCA Civ 71 and its wider implications. Hello Corin and I should say welcome back. Hello Mark, it's great to be back. Splendid. Uh, Corin is a children's specialist, indeed a leading barrister according to both Chambers and the Legal 500. And as I said, uh, she's also a familiar face here at Pod Towers. Listeners may remember Corin from as long ago as Series 1, which is over a year ago now, if you believe it, uh, where she gave a fascinating insight on what happens when care proceedings and criminal proceedings collide. And so I can think of no one better to guide us through the legacy of the Court of Appeals decision in RE-TNR. So Corin, if I may, I wonder whether you could just introduce, well, me and the listener to RE-TNR and, and, and where we're up to before the Court of Appeal got involved. Of course. Um, this case is about, or was about, six children. Um, four girls, seven, six, five and four. Then a boy, T, who was three, and another girl, R, who was two. And you might be guessing from the title of the Court of Appeal case that the Court of Appeal case was about the two youngest, T and R. Um, the most I worked imp- that one out. Ha- had you? Oh, exciting. <laughs> Well, you know, with these with these names anonymized and all that, it's sometimes tricky. <laughs> anyway, the most important piece of factual background probably is that this was a family from a traveller background. And in fact, that was an incredibly important feature to the parents. And that comes out loud and clear from uh, the, the reports and clearly how the evidence they gave was summarised. Um, The family came to the attention of children's services after an altercation with a neighbour. They went into temporary accommodation and concerns seemed to have escalated from there, particularly about one of the older girls, C. Um, She was underweight and developmentally delayed. She'd sustained two fractures and there was a finding of fact hearing um, at first instance, which isn't part of this appeal, but basically the judge found that one or other, both of the parents had pulled or lifted C by the arms with enough force to cause the fractures. And the judge also made some findings about the father losing his temper and becoming aggressive and sometimes violent. But he also found that there was a close relationship between the parents, which wasn't generally characterised by verbal arguments or abuse. So that's where it was at after the finding of fact hearing. Um, His Honour Judge Richards then adjourned the matter for expert assessments after the finding of fact, including psychologists who did assessments of the parents. And the psychological evidence was that both parents had considerable cognitive difficulties, which restricted their ability to meet the children's needs. And essentially, there was complete professional consensus that these parents could not do the job of looking after any of these children and they needed to be placed elsewhere. The local authority applied for care orders for the older, for for all children, um, but also for placement orders for T and R and it's the placement orders that are the bone of contention for this appeal. Um, uh, His Honour Judge Richards made care orders for the four older children because he was persuaded that the parents couldn't do the job of looking after the children, but he declined to endorse care plans for 
um, T and R to be placed for adoption. And he invited the local authority to amend the plan for T and R to one of long-term foster care. And that, I suppose, is one of the first points for wider implications. That is, of course, always the prerogative of a judge at a final hearing faced with a placement order application he or she can always say actually no i don't agree because that. it has to be it has to be it's the last resort isn't it it's it, is. have, yeah. it has to be a complete disaster before we get to that point absolutely it's nothing else will do and no stone left unturned etc all the good old reby and bs points that probably everyone is very familiar with any everyone who works in this area certainly um so um the reasons his honor judge richards gave for that decision well first of all of course ain't that any time a judge says something like that the cat is well and truly among the pigeons and i would um imagine that there were a number of fairly ruffled feathers in the local authority and indeed with the guardian as the further history of this case will show but the reasons his honor judge richards gives when you read the judgment there are a large number of reasons or i've made myself a little bullet point list of a large number of reasons but actually when you look at all of them they can really be distilled down to a couple of points and the main thrust of them is that the evidence before his honor was that the cultural identity of these children was of enormous importance and the sibling relationship was of enormous importance. One factor was that T, the only boy in the traveller culture, enjoyed a particular status amongst his sisters and was treated a particular way, even though as, as the boy of the family was the man of the family to be, even though he was only three years old, that came across very clearly. Um, and because of the importance of this cultural background and their heritage and, that, and their identity, the judge was very clear that contact was incredibly important. And my reading is that it wasn't just that he felt sibling contact was incredibly important, but contact between the family, he, with, with, with the parents, because he seemed to take the view that basically the only way in which these children could have their cultural heritage maintained and their identity maintained for them was through contact with their parents in particular, but also with the siblings. And in fact, it seems that one of the psychologists very much gave evidence to the effect that the children's um, emotional development crucially depended on their being sibling contact and uh, this would be detrimentally affected if contact for any reason got lost. And the judge was um, cautious, shall I say, about assuming that contact could be maintained post-adoption, even though it was apparently part of the local authority's care plan that there would be ongoing sibling contact as at, at a level of three to four times a year. But he essentially wasn't persuaded that there was any effective mechanism by which that and contact with the parents could be guaranteed if if placement orders were made yeah and i suppose yeah. also i mean it's one thing sibling contact but if if part of the contact is to maintain cultural identity and the parents are obviously going to play a big role in that that it does need to be relatively regular doesn't it i, I think that must have been part of the thinking and 
Then another factor that really played, I think, in the judge's mind was that the father, or possibly both parents, gave very clear evidence, which was unchallenged, that adoption is not a concept that is at all known amongst the traveller community. And so the judge really grappled with how we could even be squared that adopters who are trying to make these children their own could meaningfully facilitate contact with parents who are rooted in a culture that to, to which, as he put it, adoption is anathema. And mm. you can see how he, he might have thought that that was going to be a real stretch to make that work, because in effect, the children would have had to be would have to be expected to invest in this new family as adopted children whilst still identifying with their traveller heritage that meant in which adoption wasn't a valid concept at all. And I, I can quite see how that would be difficult. Anyway, so those kind of in summary terms are the reasons why he said no to the placement orders for T and R. Um, and he also had a bit of a, how he put it, a residue of concern that the reasons given in favour of placement for adoption by the guardian and perhaps the social worker were sort of all about generalities such as the ages of the children and their quote-unquote adoptability, which I personally think is a terrible term, but is occasionally used. Um, and he was quite clear that on these very specific facts, he just didn't think um, the high test, if nothing else will do, was established. And of course, so he I mean, said no. Yeah, just because they could be easier to adopt doesn't, doesn't mean they should be. <laughs> Precisely. And, and that was very much on my reading in the judge's mind. Anyway, um, back to the cat and the pigeons, the local authority and the guardian. <laughs> both appealed um, against the refusal to make the placement orders. And the matter clearly was given permission, came before the Court of Appeal um, and uh, was heard by Lord Justices Floyd, Baker and Males and Lord Justice Baker gave the judgment of the court. The grounds of the appeal were very much, can very much be summarised along the lines of well, the judge just didn't weigh this up right. He just didn't give the right amount of weight to the right factors. Um, in particular, the local authority and the Guardian argued that the judge hadn't given enough weight to the fundamental aspects of the benefits of adoption um, and the fact that the children couldn't be returned to the parents, their young ages, the fact that they had had a difficult and disruptive childhood, um, that the children would have to move, that was one of the sort of side issues in the case. They had been with these foster carers who were approved as short-term foster carers only. And, and although the evidence was that they had done incredibly well in this placement and very, very attached to these carers, the argument seems to have been that because they're not approved as long-term foster carers, the children would have to move. Now, the Court of Appeal actually expressed some scepticism on that score, as indeed did those representing the parents. And they, they said, well, hang on a second, just because they haven't yet been approved, that doesn't mean that couldn't be considered. But that's slightly an aside. Um, 
because in fact, the judge at first instance proceeded on the basis that they would have to move as far as I understand it and still waded up coming down against placement. So, Well, it's yes, in terms of the harm to children of having uh, one move versus loss of cultural identity and sibling contact. Yeah, you can see how he justified it. Yeah, you can. Um, but anyway, so that was one thing they cited as a reason why he was wrong. Um, also, they felt that he had focused too much on the Guardian saying it was just the ages of the children rather than taking into account the full um, range of arguments in favour of adoption that the Guardian had put forward. Uh, and then a, quite an important point, which I have to say did strike me as I was reading the judgment or the summary of the first instance judgment, was that he had, hadn't given enough weight to the statutory scheme for post-adoption contact um, as it's contained in sections 26 and 51A of the Adoption and Children Act 2002. And that did strike me because he seemed so very sceptical about the enforceability of any contact that I, I thought, mm, well, hang on, you could actually make an order. So that was criticised. Um, and then he was... the. The grounds of appeal also included that he'd given too much weight to the importance of maintaining cultural and family links and the need for ongoing direct contact and, and having promoted that above the need for secure and stable and enduring placement. Um, and there was also criticism that he hadn't analysed that balance sufficiently mm. in his judgment um, and that he hadn't sufficiently taken into account the risk of emotional harm if the if the children would suffer breakdowns of foster placements. So those were... Lots, well, lots, the... of, lots of criticisms. You've built it yeah. up. You, everyone yeah. is on tenterhooks. What did, <laughs> what did the Court of Appeal decide? The Court of Appeal decided that the judge had done a perfectly good job and they were not going to interfere because um, in the Court of Appeal's judgment, the judge had maintained focus on the children's welfare and he could have set out the advantages of adoption in more detail, but they didn't see any reason to doubt that he had, in fact, had the factors in mind. Because he used this phrase, the usual reasons, <laughs> a couple of times, which uh, it, it sounds as though The Guardian, in fact, said the usual reasons or may have said the usual reasons as to why adoption is better. And, you know, there are the usual reasons because they're always trotted out and mm. it's the same in every case across the board. Yes, foster placements break can break down, um, but hey-ho, so can adoptive placements. Particularly <laughs> so, if, the pair, if, if culturally it's completely foreign to the parents and their, yeah. their, their way of living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the Court of Appeal also considered that actually the judge had taken into account the disadvantages of long-term fostering because he did make reference to the risk of um, changes and placement breakdown. Um, and the Court of Appeal felt the judge was right to attach weight, so much weight to um, contact as a factor of particular importance because of the expert evidence about how central it was. And um, that loss of contact would risk damaging the psychological development of all of the children. Um, the Court of Appeal also did accept the point that the judge hadn't made explicit reference to the statutory scheme for post-adoption contact, but said uh, actually he, 
he did accurately reflect the approach advocated by the Court of Appeal um, to contact orders against adopters. And basically, Court of Appeal said, look, this court on various previous occasions has made it quite clear that it's exceptional to impose a contact order um, on reluctant adopters because, well, surprise, surprise, in those sorts of scenarios, the court usually takes the view that maintaining the stability of the placement outweighs um, any considerations about contacts. Yeah. And a, a, a realistic application of the statute, yeah. effectively. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, it's it's almost in in some ways you could say it's sort of admitting defeat in in the face of reality that that yes you have a statutory scheme but you've got to be really realistic about how far it's going to get you in any particular case um, and the court of appeal also entirely respected the judge's findings that T and R even though they were still very young ha did have already a very strong sense or a real sense of belonging to the family. And um, the central importance of their cultural heritage to all the children, including the two very young ones, and, though, and the court of appeal found those findings were plainly open to the judge on the evidence. So, um, Lord Justice Baker was of the view, and the court was of the view that His Honour Judge Richards provided clear and coherent reasons for his decisions, in, and including, as case law required, his reasons for departing from the recommendations of the Guardian. Um, and in some, Court of Appeal decided that this was not a decision with which they could interfere, and the appeal was dismissed. So, uh, in, in that context, the first instance judgment has been upheld. What <laughs> Tell the listeners why we're discussing about this case. <laughs> what, are, what are the implications of this judgment? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that I want to be quite cautious about taking too many broader lessons from this because His Honour Judge Richards at first instance was quite clear that it was on the facts of this particular case that he was reaching his conclusions. And of course, our listeners will be well familiar with that always being trotted out in any case that ends up being case law in children cases. It's always, you always have to look at the specific facts. But if we look at some things that I do think we can take away, well, maybe slightly um, tongue in cheek, the first one is that it remains as hard as ever to persuade the Court of Appeal to interfere with a judge's exercise of judgment and weighing up different factors. And if your point or if your grounds of appeal are that the judge hasn't attached the right amount of weight to varying factors, you generally face an uphill struggle. And this case hasn't done anything to change that. Um, but more seriously, and more specifically to this case, I think it does add an extra tool to the toolkit or something to bear in mind when arguing over placement orders and, and contact and the importance of contact. And that's, that is where there are strong cultural considerations. Those are worth bearing in mind and they're worth um, really exploring whether um, a placement for adoption is compatible with a child's welfare for the rest of their lives as the Adoption Children Act, of course, tells us we must do when considering the, uh, making placement orders. Um, but in cases where 
there is a suggestion, where there is evidence to suggest there's a strong identity, a, a strong cultural identity, but perhaps, I, I don't know, I, I was thinking about in what other sorts of scenarios this could apply, and um, clearly in cultural cases, and maybe the traveller community is a particularly strong example. Um, I certainly have done a care case involving a, a family who, in fact, identified as gypsy, not travellers. Um, and it was a very, very important factor to bear in mind because identity and belonging to the community is an incredibly important um, factor for, for that whole family as well. So it's that kind of case, but you can see that it could apply to other cultures. And of course, it's an interesting point, this point about adoption is anathema because our jurisdiction is so unique in having such widespread and non-consensual adoption, which is not really replicated anywhere else. Um, almost any family from a cultural background outside the UK, you could potentially run that argument. And I don't think it's normally successfully run or run at all in those sorts of cases. So it's probably worth considering. Um, but it could also apply to a particular religious community, perhaps, or um, depending on the circumstances, if there is a really strong family identity just for a particular family, you might be able to at least consider running that sort of argument. And presumably it has to be an identity that, 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 that cannot be met in uh, a, an adoptive placement yeah. uh, a traveler is obviously an example because it is a very distinct cultural identity yeah. compared to what one might say is the norm um and, and i suppose it would have to be uh, similar cultural arguments for other cultures would have to be analogous that distinct and not able to be replicated yeah absolutely and uh, i suppose one of the arguments is likely to be because adoption is not a thing in the traveller community, you're not going to be finding a cultural match amongst your prospective adopters, or it seems quite unlikely that you will, and that that will be a consideration. But with other cultural backgrounds, you might be able to find a match, in which case that argument wouldn't be anywhere near as strong, because it would no longer be the case that the only way in which the cultural identity can be maintained is by having contact. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think what it does for us is highlight the importance of cultural factors and maybe put it on a list of things to think about <laughs> and consider when, well, when as a local authority, you're deciding what your final care plan should be for particular children and uh, when uh, representing parents, what you might use to argue against a care plan for placement. It sits quite interestingly in contradiction to what certainly I've sort of spotted in my practice that more and more local authorities go with care plans for adoption in older children than they used to, because it very much used to be for is the cutoff point. And I don't, listeners will have their own experiences of this, but not infrequently in, recent, in the recent year or two, 
have I come across cases where children are five, six, seven, and there's still a care plan for adoption? And in, in those sorts of scenarios, you get much more into territory of maintaining contact, and you get much more into territory of children having a very real sense of belonging to their family. So this, the, the, this argument is only going to get stronger the older the children are? I would have thought so, yes. Um, although then it, it, it will also depend again on very much on the circumstances of the family, because sometimes if parents can be can get to the point where they can accept that their children have a new family but are still also in a factual if not legal sense their children then you can see how post-adoption direct contact could work and it certainly is much more a thing than it used to be and it's now as I understand it part of training for any prospective adopters that they they have to be willing to consider direct contact with birth families so that there isn't this absolute cutoff. But, you know, it's, it's a conceptual struggle, though, that the, the whole idea that you stop being legally part of your family. But you still see them. I suppose because yeah. well, one of the arguments in favour of adoption is the sort of finality and it's a mm-hmm. kind of a clean break and a, a fresh start. But if post-adoption contact is really really ongoing and that it does it does undermine that whole thought process doesn't it it does and it moves a very long way from what most ordinary people who don't spend their days in the family courts would understand adoption to be because I would imagine that very much still is the old-fashioned people giving up babies at birth because they can't care for them Uh, and then that child growing up with the adoptive family from very early on Uh, and you know there's I think there is very much evidence that placements of older children are at much more risk of breakdown because well there you have this little person who has a sense of their own history and you're expecting them to buy into a new family sometimes that works I've I've had a case where an eight-year-old has asked actively asked to be placed for adoption and then, and then of course in those circumstances you can see how that's going to work well yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> that that seems fairly cut and dried but it does um anyway i i, I won't i won't keep you corin because we're very grateful for your time but um i i think there were just a couple of procedural points that mm. you wanted to raise arising from this well just a sort of a couple of procedural asides come came into this as well. One was the point about well, they're both to do with the representation of the four other children or of the of all of the children. Um, a, a few days before the appeal hearing, uh, it appears that counsel f- for the parents suggested um, that the four older children should be represented by a different guardian from T and R because the guardian for was arguing in favour or was appealing the um, decision not to make the placement orders. And of course, the older children stood to lose um, more of their contact if and indeed stood to lose their legal relationship to their siblings if the children were placed for adoption, the younger children. Um, the Court of Appeals slightly sidestepped the issue in the sense that it made the decision on the basis of the fact that this point was raised only days before the appeal hearing and it would have been disproportionate to put off the appeal hearing 
to allow uh, that issue to be aired any further or, or separate representation to be obtained. But it's an interesting point because those representing The Guardian made the point that you have a first instance in care proceedings. You have a scenario all the time where different children, siblings, different care plans are best for different children and the guardian has to juggle that and the judge has to make a decision. So that issue was slightly parked, but the takeaway point is um, Justice Baker saying, well, look, if you want to raise that point, you've got to do it early on. So mm. do it at the point where the appeal notice um, is served or as soon as possible thereafter. And then the same similar sort of issue was raised again at the end of the appeal when um, counsel for, I think it was mother, but I may be misremembering this, um, asked about whether the four older children whose cases were essentially finished should be represented at the next hearing before the first instance court, because obviously the placement order having not been made and yes. the matter adjourned for TNR, there was going to have to be the further consideration of what final orders should be made and the local authority was going to have to come back with its amended final care plans. Um, and the Court of Appeal basically said, look, it's premature for us to say whether they should or shouldn't because we don't know what the local authority is going to say. And if essentially they're going to say, place in long-term foster care, I would imagine the answer is going to be there's no need for the older children to be represented mm. at that hearing because it isn't going to interfere any further with their right to a family life. Interesting. So, yeah, well, you, yeah. Can see, you can see why it was raised, though. Yeah, you, you the, can. The distinction between the sort of two groups of children. Yeah, it's a knotty, it's a knotty point. I, I found myself on the receiving end of that argument once with a guardian as well in, in another case where it was an adoption application for one sibling, but not the other. Um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, I very much found myself making the same arguments as those representing the Guardian did in this case, which is this happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, although in an ideal world, perhaps. Yeah, but you can see that procedurally it could end up really messy because then you've got two Guardians making contradictory, um, potentially yeah, yeah, yeah. you have two Guardians making contradictory recommendations and then the court is potentially not going to be helped all that much but no not if you have to rule on one guard favor one guardian over the other it starts to become very messy yeah but still i suppose in terms of having the arguments for both sides put on an equal footing i can see the argument for having two separate mm. guardians but it anyway. also boils down to resources no doubt because Kafka's I, I was about to say exactly overwhelmed yeah. with I think it's, it's 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 probably a very interesting academic discussion that's never <laughs> ever going to be reflected on the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, Corin, thank you so much uh, for that. It's, it's been, been really a interesting. Good. Thank you. Um, good to be here. It's always again. Uh, yeah. It's always good to have you. Um, listeners, thank you for listening. Please do continue to send in feedback, ideas, reviews, thoughts. I'm told excitingly you can now find us on Audible and Amazon Music as well as Apple, Google and Spotify and the website. So even more ways to listen to your favourite family law podcast. In coming episodes, I'll be speaking to Jennifer Lee about orders under Section 22ZA 
and cost allowances in Schedule 1 and Section 8 proceedings. Uh, but until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, Corin, again. And thank you. Pleasure. Goodbye. Thank you.